Well, some of you know that I took a little bit of a circuitous journey to be standing here as a minister among you. I was raised in the Baptist church, and uh, until I was about 10 or 11, 12 years old, my family changed, and we moved to the Disciples of Christ First Christian Church, which is where I was baptized in eighth grade and went all through high school youth group there. When I got to college, I attended a small uh, non-denominational church near campus. I met my husband, who was Catholic, and we began going to the Catholic Church together. I was confirmed into the Catholic Church, raised our kids in the Catholic Church, taught Sunday school, did all the things, took classes in, in Catholic uh, doctrine and theology, and I took ancient um, Christian history classes through the church until I was called here to work at Snowmass Chapel, which is this delightful interdenominational feel. And within a very short period of time of being here, I felt the very strong call to seminary. So I went to seminary that was a, uh, rooted in the Methodist church, the Methodist tradition, although it was very ecumenical as well. And I'm now getting my doctorate in ministry at Duke Divinity, which is also Methodist. So I like to refer to myself as a Baptist Christomethalic. And so standing here before you as an ordained Baptist Christomethalic pastor, I like to think that I am ecumenical to my core. But I've been reflecting on that recently with all the cries that we hear for unity in our nation. I think if we have any real chance at unity, we're gonna to need to start practicing it in our churches. And I don't just mean here at Snowmass Chapel, I mean in our churches around the world. Shortly after Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another, he looked up to the heavens and he prayed. And if you were listening closely to Mika's song a moment ago, there is no doubt in my mind that the Holy Spirit works among us because he did not know that I was gonna use this exact scripture and I did not know he was gonna sing that song. And I love when it comes together that way. So Jesus looked up to the heavens and he prayed and here's what he said. He said, God, I am praying for not only these disciples, but also for those who will believe in me because of them and their witness about me. The goal is for all of them to become one heart and one mind. And then Jesus said, through their actions, they will give the world evidence that you have sent me. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus didn't pray for his believers' success or happiness or for their businesses to thrive or them to find the right relationship or for only good things to come their way. Jesus prayed for their unity. He knew they would need it. I mentioned the word ecumenical a couple of times, and, and that just means having to do with the whole Christian church, to promote and foster Christian unity throughout the world. Since the first century, for nearly 2,000 years now, Christians have recited the words of the Apostles' Creed in almost every church throughout the world. And one of the lines of the Apostles' Creed goes like this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, etc. 
The word Catholic here, with a little c, means universal. Now, some people get worked up about that. They'll hear the word and they think, well, I'm not Catholic. Why would I profess to believe in the Holy Catholic Church? But Catholic, with a little c, means universal. And the apostles of the early church didn't know that we would wind up having over 300 Christian denominations in the world, by some accounts. By some accounts, there's 30,000, if you want to get particular about each one. But those early church apostles were just concerned with the universal, the little c, Catholic. They were already committed at that point to keeping us together. Since the Christian movement began, we have professed our belief in one faith, in our oneness. But also since the beginning of that movement, we've struggled with it. I don't like the way this church worships, some people would say. Those hymns they sing at that church are ridiculous. They believe the bread and the wine is something magic happens to it, turns into the body and blood of Christ. They believe that it's just a symbol. This other church over here is too new agey. This one is too liberal. This one won't let women preach. This one's too conservative. Blah, 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 blah. Bab to Christomethalic. Remember that old book, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small stuff? That's what it reminds me of. This past year has been a tough one, and I know I'm stating the obvious. Robert shared last week that this year has been sort of like driving on a horrible road with potholes and construction and detours, and it's thrown us all a little bit out of whack, like a car out of alignment. And so during this season of Lent, we are looking at some of the places where we might need to be realigned. And today I want to focus us a little bit on road rage and how we might be taking our anger out on other people around us when we would be better served to share the road. Sharing the road is what we're called to. In the early church, in those first and second centuries, they had to band together in order to survive. Literally, they needed to organize themselves and stick together and agree on the most important things, letting the small stuff slide. Because if they were too divided and they didn't have that strength in numbers, they might just wind up in a coliseum being fed to the tigers. Here was a group of religious people, after all, who said, we refuse to bow down to other gods. We refuse to bow down to Caesar, the supreme leader of the land. They posed a bit of a threat to the world. And frankly, so do we. Think of it. We are a group of people who claim that you are blessed when you're persecuted, who claim that we are blessed when we mourn, and blessed when we're filled for mercy for those who do wrong. We claim allegiance to the one who told us to love our enemy, to welcome strangers, and to care for the needy. We believe it when Jesus said we'd have to leave everything behind to follow him, even if we try hard sometimes to sneak a few things in our suitcase. The bottom line is this, if we're going to live 
lives, as radical as all of that, as radical as what Jesus calls us to, then we better set differences aside and lean in to the power of community. Jesus did not call us to some heroic individualism. He didn't call anyone to go it alone. He gathered the 12, he sent them out two by two, and he taught them how to love the least among them. It's tough for ordinary people like us to do the extraordinary work that Jesus calls us to. We need to be of one mind and one heart because the tigers are waiting behind their cages for us. This is why Jesus prayed for our unity. This is why he prayed for us, not just for the disciples then, but for all disciples to come, that we would stay united in our love for God and for one another. Our unity is proof to the world, evidence, Jesus said, of God's love, which is for all people. How we behave matters. Now, I could stop right there, but let's talk about the elephant in the room. Jesus commanded that we love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. But you might be thinking, do I have to love my neighbor who I passionately disagree with on so many levels? And the answer is yes. Yes, you do. But sometimes we are called to draw a line in the sand and declare something terribly wrong when we see it. We prefer tolerance and compromise. We value diversity and different perspectives. Amen. We get so much. We are in, so enriched by learning about other cultures and other perspectives and experiences that people have had. But today's reading is an urgent reminder that some people are teaching a perverted gospel. That's strong language. Paul is not mincing words here. He has no room for the niceties that we hear in some of his other letters in the New Testament. Paul is usually encouraging and patient in his letters to the new churches. But here in Galatians, Paul's words are scathing. Why? Because the churches in Galatia, which he founded, were falling prey to some new teachers, missionaries, he called them, who were twisting Jesus' words and distorting Paul's teaching. And Paul lays in to the people who are falling for it. I am astonished, he says, that you are deserting the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. This so-called gospel, he says, is perverting the truth. And what had him so riled up was that the missionaries were teaching that if you wanted to become Christian, you had to abide by the laws of the Torah, which was to be circumcised and observe the rituals and the festivals of the Jews that they had observed for thousands of years. And this was a complete departure from the truth that Jesus was teaching 
that you are a new thing in Christ. There is nothing you need to do in order to receive God's love but to believe. All the old laws are not required of you as Christians. There is just one, love God, love people. Everything else goes through the filter of that Jesus taught. And so Paul just throws down the gauntlet and he says, "Uh uh-uh, you have one gospel and it is a gospel of love and of grace and of mercy and forgiveness and it is good news for everybody. He says, if you claim anything else, it's a counterfeit gospel. In 1934, when Hitler tried to claim Christianity in defense of nationalism and ethnic cleansing and the destruction of over six million lives, Christian leaders drafted what's known as the Barman Declaration, which stated in part that the church should not be influenced by current political convictions. And it declared in no uncertain terms that Hitler's was a counterfeit gospel. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in the 1500s, he was protesting the sale of indulgences by the church, which he and a whole lot of others knew to be an affront to the unmerited grace of God. Luther was protesting a counterfeit gospel. When the king and queen of Spain wished to cleanse their nation of anyone but Christian believers in the 1400s, they enlisted the help of the church who offered them permission to use whatever means possible to convert people, including death to those who would not be baptized. That's a counterfeit gospel. These historical and pivotal events were not arguments over what color of carpet to install in the sanctuary or whether or not clergy should wear robes, although, by the way, that did come up in the 1500s, if you can believe it. One bishop got thrown in jail and nearly got beheaded for suggesting that they did not need to wear robes while they were being ordained. I'm glad they're not here watching us today. But distortions of faith on the level of Hitler's Nazi Christianity, or the sale of indulgences, or forced conversion in the Middle Ages had to be called out. And they have to be called out today when we see them, not because we disagree with someone's politics, not because of inconsequential differences, or difference that we might be able to find some common ground for, but because they compromise the very heart of the gospel. The gospel means good news. If someone can twist the teachings of Jesus such that they would rather kill people than have them not convert to Christianity, I think we all fail to see the good news in that. The theologian George Lindbeck wrote, that if the crusader cries out in his battle victory, Jesus is Lord, while severing the head of an infidel, he is not claiming the truth of Jesus. It's worth asking ourselves the hard question, who's shouting Jesus is Lord today while severing someone's head? 
All Christian behavior should be measured against the standards of the good news. And that is, God's grace is free and given to all. All means all. The good news is that God breaks into the world and promises to make all things new. And the good news is that the dark powers of the world will never hold against the powers of love. And all of that, all of that goodness is not our doing. It's God working through us. That's really all we need to know. Most of the difference we deal with on our faith journey is small stuff. Don't sweat the small stuff. In fact, Jesus told us not to even judge others, but to leave that to him. But to the extent something is causing grievous fractures and fragmentation, to the extent that there is grave harm being done to people in the name of Jesus, either physically or emotionally, we need to run those things through a filter. Does this teaching or behavior meet the standards of mercy and grace and love that we know come from God? If not, we need to name that falsity when we see it, to draw that line in the sand, but to do so as Christ would do, in love, with an abundance of grace and looking through the lens of God. Our actions bear witness to the one we follow. They'll know we are Christians by our love. We just sang that beautiful song. So on this second Sunday of Lent, I wonder if those here of us, those of us here at Snowmass Chapel, might pray and reflect this week on how our behaviors and our attitudes align with the truth of the gospel. Maybe ask, where do I see myself nurturing unity with my fellow Christians? Where do I see myself seeking to understand, sharing the road? Where do I feel most challenged to be generous in my thinking towards our difference? Where might I be distorting truth or allowing someone else's distortion to negatively affect me by watching too much of a certain kind of news, following only a narrow group of bloggers or social media groups or religious leaders who skew my thinking too far in one direction. Have I maybe gravitated to a congregation that looks just like me, votes just like me, and acts just like me because I equate the gospel with a certain political view? Now is the time for repentance from what keeps us apart, including gospel messages that preach anything other than Christ, who was crucified and resurrected so that we might know a deeper, deeper love. Now is the time for repentance from a kind of road rage on our shared journey, which often stems from fear of change, fear of losing control, need to be right. Now is the time to seek common ground, to hear each other's stories, to seek understanding. 
it's something we need to practice in our churches before we can take it out into the world. Robert has often said here that he loves looking out at the pews and seeing a Republican sitting next to a gay couple, sitting next to people of color, sitting next to a libertarian, sitting next to a Democrat. We're lucky here. I agree with Robert. When we walk across that bridge and come in here to the front doors of this church, we are one. We are one in Christ. We gather together in a really special way. It's a way that is rooted in the gospel of Jesus, which means we are rooted in love and a desire to overcome anything that might divide us. And I praise God for that. That's what we need to practice in our churches to take out into the world. Jesus prayed that we would be one. When he spoke of himself as the good shepherd, Jesus said there is one shepherd for one flock. We're one flock. Later in this Lenten series, we're going to talk about those cries for unity that we're hearing in our nation and in our world and how we might be able to heal those divides. But for right now, I invite us to begin by reflecting on the knowledge that Christians all over the world are already one flock. Let's not try to recreate unity. Let's protect the unity that we already have. That's my prayer. And let us pray together.